0: Do turn with me in your Bible to John chapter 2 And uh, we read earlier in the service the beginning of the worship wars And Jesus sparks them off Because the events that we're reading about happen in the temple The focal point of Jewish worship at the time And Jesus storms in As we shall see and he overturns the oxen and the sheep and the pigeons and the money changers he chases them out and he cleans up the worship of God now as John's gospel goes on as we've been studying this gospel we find that in Jesus increasingly is taking into his grip the fundamental hallmarks of the age of the Old Testament and the Old Covenant We've already seen him already take over the functions of the ceremony of the Jewish law. At the beginning of this chapter, we read last time about Jesus turning the water into wine. And uh, those jars of water were used for ceremonial purposes. And Jesus takes those jars of water that were used for Jewish ceremonial purposes, and he transforms them, he changes them into jars of wine. And by changing the water into wine, Jesus has picked up on those biblical expectations of the last days that when the coming Messiah comes, there will be wine in abundance. There will be celebration. And he's signaling that the day of fulfillment has arrived. Therefore, the old order of ceremonies is coming to an end. Signal number one. Signal number two. John tells us that Jesus goes to the temple. We didn't read verse 12. It's a transitional verse that puts the story into its historical context. This cleansing of the temple that we have described here is not the same as the one described in the other gospels which occurs at the end of Jesus' ministry. The beginning and the end of his ministry are bracketed by this twofold action, similar actions, different interactions with people, but similar actions by Jesus over a span of perhaps three different Passovers, perhaps even four Passovers, however, however you work out the timeline. And uh, what's important, of course, is that in this action, he is signaling that the functions of the temple, are coming to an end. He is changing Old Testament worship and ceremonial practice. Signals number one and two. That transitional verse reminds us of course also that this is historical truth. This is not myth. This is true history that happens. And John describes Jesus, you notice, going to Jerusalem for the Passover. That The mention of the Passover time is not incidental, it is absolutely central to the whole structure of John's Gospel. He starts by going to Jerusalem at the Passover and he ends going to Jerusalem at the Passover. John the Baptist has just identified Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And now we have the announcement that officially links the Lamb to the Passover. And we are being told effectively to watch this space. Something is going to happen. Now you'll know that the Passover is the high point in the Jewish calendar. Jerusalem was the geographical and spiritual center of the Jewish religion. And the Jews that are mentioned here are the Jews of Judah and Jerusalem. Who are particularly associated with what goes on in the temple and perhaps even more particularly a reference to the leaders of the Jewish religious life. So get this in your head. It's Passover. We're in Jerusalem. Jesus goes to the temple and he has his first confrontation over the issue of the worship of God. So the temple is the focus. And we see the significance of the temple, the cleansing of the temple, and the fulfillment of the temple in these verses. First of all, the significance of the temple. Important we have that in our minds, because the temple is the place where God is present. Well, you say, Leave, isn't God present everywhere? That's absolutely right. There's nowhere you can go in all the universe in heaven or hell or anywhere else that you can ever get to that you will not be outside of the presence of God God is everywhere present the psalmist tells us that, the Bible says it all the time He is infinite, He is everywhere He fills all things by His glory and yet the Bible also says that God is most intensely present in His own home that we call heaven there is a place where God is most intensely present. And where he's surrounded by these supernatural beings that serve him all the time. These spirit beings, cherubim, seraphim, the angelic hosts, and as we understand now, the host of the redeemed. Those who have been redeemed from earth and who are there in the intensity of his home. He's in his living room in heaven and he is intensely present there uh, where those are but the temple the temple was his earthly address the temple was the place where god was most intensely present on earth among his people that was that was the understanding and so the first temple is Eden. There, our first parents. Had daily fellowship with God. We're told that he walked and he talked with them there in the garden. He placed them in the garden to cultivate and keep the garden. We think that's primarily agricultural. In fact, it's probably primarily ecclesiastical or religious because the same words are used to serve and guard of the priesthood in Israel. And the Israelites who first heard Moses would know exactly what he was saying when he said that in the garden where God walked and talked with Adam and Eve, they were there as priests in the garden to serve him. But of course Adam failed to keep out the unclean servant. He failed to guard and protect the temple of God. And because of his disobedience, he was expelled. And the cherubim were put at the gate to guard the way into the immediate, intense presence of God. And when God came to Moses and told him to build the Ark of the Covenant, he said that the Ark of the Covenant was to be the footstool of the throne of God. And the Ark of the Covenant had to have two cherubim on it to remind people. That through the Ark of the Covenant and through the sprinkling of the blood on top of the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, those who were excluded from Eden are enabled by the grace of God to come near to God. Through that blood, come to the throne of God, come into the Holy of Holies by virtue of the blood that was shed. The tabernacle and later the temple were miniature representations of that perfect temple in heaven where God's presence is particularly intense. And not only that, but you remember the Jewish temple, up until the time of the exile, for about, I don't know how many hundred years, was identifiable from a distance because you could see as you approached Jerusalem, as you came up over the brow of the hill and you saw Mount Zion in the, fu- in the distance and you saw the temple gleaming against the sky the sun shining on its golden roof you would see a cloud of a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night day in, day in, day out year in, year out that pillar, that Shekinah the glory of God was a signal that the God of Israel was present he was at home on earth In his earth home, some of you have shore homes, this was God's earth home where he met with his people and where he deigned to walk and talk with his people in his throne room. John has picked up all of that language. And in the opening of this gospel, he has said to us, what's happening at Christmas? Yes, Christmas. I hope you got decorations ready to put them up. I've already targeted new areas of the house that are going to be decorated this year. Christmas is coming, and at Christmas, John tells us, when the Word became flesh, he tented amongst us. That is, he tabernacled amongst us. In other words, in Christ, in Christ's flesh, God is So intensely present that it outshines every other instance of the presence of God in Scripture. Because God is in Christ. The Word became flesh. No wonder John can say about Jesus, We saw... Not the cloud or the fire, but we saw in Jesus the glory of God. We saw the glory of God, full of grace and truth. Indeed, that, that miracle of changing the water into wine, we're told the outcome of that was so that his disciples were able to say that he manifested his glory to them and they believed in him. They believed in him. So for our purposes in approaching this passage today, we need to remind ourselves of the the significance of the temple. It was God's earthly address. It was where God is intensely present. And now God himself in Christ visits the temple. God is present in a way they they hadn't recognized yet. So secondly, let's look at the cleansing of the temple. The text before us focuses on what Jesus saw and did and said. What Jesus saw? Well, he found the temple and its grounds in a state of absolute chaos. It was meant to be a sanctuary, but frankly, it looked and sounded and smelt like a market. A cattle market, for that matter. You see, the law of God has strict guidelines as to how you should worship God. How you could or could not come to God. What you could or could not bring is an offering to God. You couldn't bring anything. It had to be perfect. Ultimately, that perfect offering was going to be Jesus. But those animals for sacrifice had to be checked out and they had to be pr- approved by the priests. The, the priests. Decided that they had a little thing going here. People came from long distances. They couldn't bring their own livestock with them And so they would come to Jerusalem and just to make it easy for people they would make available Across the Kidron River on the other side on the Mount of Olives away from the temple They would allow people to come there and buy an animal or a turtle dove or a pigeon if they were poor uh, that were checked out by the priests They would be able to buy them there in order to use them at worship. Of course, there was another clause. You could only buy animals for sacrifice using temple currency. All other currencies were defective. Temple currency was pure silver. It had to be pure because it was involved with the temple. So they did a deal for you. You could come with your impure money, you see. And you could get some pure temple money... To spend on the animal that you wanted to use for a sacrifice. At a cost, of course. But I want you to notice that John isn't so much concerned with any shenanigans that might have been going on in the sale of these animals and in the money-changing business. That isn't so much what Jesus is concerned about. What he's concerned about is this. As a matter of convenience, that buying and selling operation that took place on the Mount of Olives had been moved over the Kedron, up the hill, into the temple precincts itself, into the court of the Gentiles, where everybody could mix together and where a Gentile who was seeking God could come to find out more about God and worship God. In other words, the, the, the marketplace had been taken from outside the city walls, brought into the sanctuary of God. And so if you came to worship God, what would you be doing? You'd be stumbling over all these animals. You'd be hearing people changing money. You'd hear the noise of bartering. You'd you'd smell the smell of all those animals herded together. You would be hearing the noise of those animals making animal sounds and so on. Rather than being a place to come as a sanctuary to worship God, it had become a marketplace. That's what Jesus saw. They were making a convenience of sacred space. They were making it hard for people to focus on the worship of God. With the excuse that they were doing this so that they had more money to beautify the sanctuary and administer the affairs of the temple, they found a disaster. That's what Jesus saw. Chaos. Chaos in the worship of God. Imagine Jesus did a little tour of North American churches on a Sunday morning. I think he'd find chaos in the worship of God if half the people whose books I read do what they say they've done in the, in the books they reinvent church every Sunday morning they just keep on reinventing church every Sunday morning according to their own judgment according to their own decision so secondly, what did Jesus do? what he did he comes in And he makes a whip of cords. Don't think he's being cruel to the animals here. He merely uses this, I think, to shepherd them out. He is being rather more aggressive when he overturns the table of the money changers and sends them flying with a flea in their ear. The temple. He assaults the dignity of the temple. Later in the temple, he will find someone who betrays him, and he'll meet those who want to kill him. And when he teaches in the temple, later on, he will challenge the religious establishment. And in chapter 7 of John's Gospel, he will actually declare that he himself is the foundation of a new temple. But in the context of this chapter, do you notice this? Having set aside the Jewish purification ritual at Cana of Galilee, he now disrupts a public festival of the Jews. By acting, he acts to drive out the sheep and cattle using the whip. He orders that the bird cages should be removed. And he fulfills the prophecy of Zechariah the prophet who said that on that final day there will be no longer merchants in the house of the Lord Almighty. He fulfills the word of Malachi about the last days that the Lord will suddenly appear in his temple So that people once again would offer acceptable sacrifice. He is declaring that he is initiating the day of the Lord. And that the old order is coming to an end. Temple worship is going to come to an end. The ritual is going to come to an end. Notice thirdly what Jesus said. The first order is directed to those selling the doves. Take these things away. The second is addressed to everybody within earshot. Stop making, stop turning my father's house into a house of trade, a market. And as his disciples see this, later on his followers remember the, the language of Psalm 69 about the righteous sufferer. There it spoke about the sufferer's zeal for the house of God. The psalmist talks about one who had borne reproach for God's sake and become a stranger to his brothers and an alien. I think that's probably picking up the reference to his mother and his brothers and his disciples back in verse 12. The psalmist talks about that. Jesus has become a stranger to his brothers. He has become an alien in his own land. People understood that psalm to mean this that if it's a king talking, then he is concerned for the upkeep and protection of the temple. If it's a prophet who's speaking, then he is jealous for proper conduct within the temple area. And if it's somebody who's living after the Babylonian exile and the, the destruction of the temple, then That zeal of this man is focused on the rebuilding of the temple. I think all three are involved here. The house of God is an alternative expression for the temple. And so Jesus, we're told, is consumed by zeal for the temple of God. He is zealous for the worship of God. He wants the worship of God to be protected. He wants the worship of God to be purified. He wants the worship of God to find its final expression in a temple that is made without hands, a temple that is not an earthly sanctuary, but actually is a heavenly sanctuary. And so we're told that Jesus is driven by zeal for the house of God. Now the Bible does warn us, doesn't it, about zeal without knowledge. But it also teaches us that appropriate zeal is a proper aspect of piety, of godliness. In the Hebrew Scriptures, we read of a man called Phineas who was promised a covenant of a lasting priesthood. Why? Because he was zealous for the honor of God. In the New Testament, Simon, the zealot, is one of Jesus' disciples because of his zeal for God. The Apostle Paul says to believers, all of us, he says, never be lacking in zeal. Not only so, but God himself is shown to be zealous for his holy name. In Isaiah chapter 59, he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself with zeal, with zeal as a cloak. Jesus zeal for the name and the glory of his heavenly Father would eventually consume him in death. The psalmist talks about this. The psalmist describes a figure who is passionately concerned for God's people. And yet at the same time, people mock him and humiliate him. The psalmist cries out for help and deliverance and looks forward in hope to the day when God will save him. And save Zion, and those who love his name shall dwell in it. The psalmist also talks about this righteous sufferer and describes him as God's faithful servant. And the early Christians saw this connection, you see. They recognized in Jesus his zeal for the house of God. They connected it to Psalm 69. They noticed the connection from Psalm 69 to Isaiah 50, 52, 53, the servant. And they understood that Jesus was both of these. He was the righteous sufferer and he was the righteous servant. And that in both capacities, he has a passion for the glory of God. He has a passionate desire to remove all obstacles to the proper worship of God by the people of God. And he's surrounded by enemies who seek his downfall as a result. Now I wonder whether today you and I are passionate about the purity of the church and in particular about its public worship. You know the time of the Reformation was all about, a large part of it was about reforming the worship of God. Why? Because somewhere... Between Jesus going and the Reformation, somewhere in there, there had been a subtle hundreds of years shift of emphasis away from the simplicity of Christian worship to a much more complex, theatrical, grandiose form of worship modeled on the Old Testament temple rather than on the synagogue as you find in the New Testament. Because New Testament believers have a temple They don't need to go back to the Old Testament temple Because our temple is in heaven We come to Jesus who is where? He is in heaven And we don't need grandiose buildings to show off what we are Because we come into the very throne room of God Whenever we call on the name of the Lord Jesus We come close to him And so at the time of the Reformation, they reformed the worship. You can read about this. The Reformers fell into two camps, really. There was the Lutheran camp that said, you know, if it's not offending anybody, you can keep the stuff in your church building. The Reformers got rid of everything. They got rid of choirs and organs and idols and images and all kinds of things. They got rid of it all. Stained glass windows, a lot. They just got cleared the place. And that's the way it lasted up until about the middle of the 19th century among the Reformed. But what what was it that was the passion that drove them? The passion that drove them was this. If it isn't written in the Bible, if we're not commanded to do it in Scripture, that is a New Testament Scripture, because that's the age of fulfillment, then we shouldn't do it. If it's not commanded, we shouldn't do it. That's what we call the regulative principle. I have a dear brother, elder, in our church here, and he regularly reminds me of the regulative principle. And I called him earlier this evening, my conscience. Because it's always important to be reminded that that's the foundation on which we stand. You know, elders of this church, members of this church, have to say that they are in agreement with the the confession of faith and the catechisms of the church. And the confession of faith and the catechisms are quite clear about what is and what is not acceptable in public worship. Public worship is an act of obedience. These people, these people were working on the assumption that if it wasn't expressly forbidden, they could do anything in the temple courts. You find this kind of thing... Happening Even under the Old Covenant, you find, for example, some of the Psalms describe the people who are on their pilgrimages going to the temple. On their pilgrimages, they have instruments and singing and dancing and all the rest of that stuff as they go towards the temple. But in the temple, there was a very prescribed, regulated worship practice. And all that stuff, fun though it was, you left at the door and you came to worship. God. Well, these religious te- leaders were turning the temple into a place of trade rather than worship. Today, what we do is we turn it into a place of entertainment rather than worship. Or even we use the house of God as a means of tool of evangelism rather than worship. While we should always be evangelizing, Why we always assume that there's somebody here, and I assume there may be somebody here this evening, and you're not a Christian And I'm grateful that you're listening in to me talking to Christians about what we believe. But we assume that primarily worship is vertical, not horizontal. It's vertical. It is for God, to God, on God's terms. And we always have to examine ourselves in everything that we do as a church as to whether or not we are doing them in God's way. Remember? God's work done in God's way will not lack God's supply. We still need to reform worship all the time. If it ever becomes a place of entertainment, if it ever becomes a showpiece for the talented few, if it ever becomes a place where we come just to watch other people worshiping, whether it's in a highly formal way, and we come to watch the priest officiating and doing all the work, and we're just the passive onlookers. Or whether it's in a more informal surroundings, where we come and we're watching the band on stage, worshipping. You ever been to those kind of meetings? Everybody's standing there, and somebody on stage is away somewhere. You think what are they on? What did they have before they came out to this meeting? What's happened is it's become a passive thing. The people of God are being denied participation in the worship of God. I went to a church once, we went to a church once. And they had just hired before we came somebody to lead the worship. And what he did was he brought his little keyboard onto the platform right in the middle of this, the sanctuary. He had it wired up to the sound. I tell you, I can take loud music. I can go to dances and I can go to places where the music's loud. So this is not somebody who's a fusty old man telling you this, okay? When he played that thing, your ears bled. <laughs> And these, these people, let me tell you, not just, not just old people, but young people are sitting there. Whoosh, you can almost see the waves. Their hair went backwards, you know. I mean, it was, it was unbelievable. And it was a desecration. People couldn't worship God because you couldn't hear yourself. You, couldn't, you didn't sing because you didn't need to sing because you'd never hear yourself in a million years if you tried to sing. Well, what these people were doing was they were disrupting the worship Of God Jesus chases them out But then the third thing that we learn from this passage Is the fulfillment of the temple Goodness sake And uh, When Jesus arrives there He begins to take on more and more Of the function of the temple What's he doing here? He's acting as the priest, isn't he? He's acting to guard the worship Of God He's doing actually what Adam failed to do in in Eden. What Adam failed to do in Eden was get rid of extraneous elements, i.e. the serpent. He didn't get rid of him. He allowed him in. His job was to protect the garden and keep out those extraneous influences. But he didn't do that. He let him in. And that led to his disobedience. And so they get into this question. They say to him, the Jews say to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus says to them, destroy this temple. And in three days I'll raise it up. I think he's saying two things to them. You're destroying the temple. You know that. Saying to these religious leaders, by letting this kind of stuff happen, you're destroying the temple of God. You're destroying it. And not only are you destroying this physical temple, And it would come to a bitter end in A.D. 70. Not only that, but you're going to destroy the temple of God. You see how the Apostle explains that to us? When he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed. They were going to destroy Jesus, who is God's final temple. We now worship Jesus. Where? In a building? No. In Christ. We come to God now. Through a, an, a priest who helps you worship? No, no. We come straight to God through Jesus Christ. He is the only mediator we have. He is the only priest we function under, as it were, high priest that we function under. He is the one name in heaven and earth that gets us into the presence of God. He is the final temple. His resurrection is God's signal to Israel, to the nations. That Jesus is now the locus and the focus of the church's worship. He is the site of God's presence with his people. God can be no more intensely present anywhere than in Christ Jesus. All the fullness of the Godhead dwells in him in bodily form. And when we come to worship, we gather to Him. When we're born again, we're united to Him. And by the Spirit of God, as we are connected to Him, guess what? This temple is growing. It's growing as more and more people, living people, born again by the Spirit of God, are built into a holy temple in the Lord. In what way is Jesus the temple? He is the temple because he is the epitome of God's presence with us. What the Holy Spirit does for us is it opens our eyes to see and our ears to hear Jesus. And when we gather to him, we gather to him as those who are connected to him by faith and It's in the context of the gathering of God's people, the assembly of His people, that we we then praise Him, we then serve Him, but above all, it's in that context that that we are served by Him. We are served with His Word that cleanses you, that renews you, that fills you with hope, that, that rebukes you, that heals you, that washes you. He serves us, above all, with salvation when you take the bread and wine he's signaling that he is serving you with salvation and we are receivers of that salvation let's pray together Father thank you for this great picture of our Lord Jesus who comes to make this mega change in the history of your redeeming purposes moving from the temple to the temple, so that now today we come to you through him. Even as I pray, this prayer is being heard in your presence. The angels and the archangels are gathered around there listening. Hordes of the redeemed are listening as I speak to you on behalf of us all here. As we pray together, our prayer is being heard in the sanctum, sanctorum, the holy of holies in heaven. And all who are there are joining in their amen when we ask that, Jesus, you would reign in our hearts and in our congregation. And we ask this in his strong name. Amen.